Good evening. Thank you, Doug. Good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome. I'm so glad you all are here for this, our second installment of our Theology Matters program. As many of you know, my name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar here at First Presbyterian Church, which means that I do this sort of thing in the life of the church, developing curriculum in teaching about matters such as, uh, or maybe I should say, about the Bible theology and why it matters, uh, to pick up on the title of our program. I just want to note that we have uh, coffee in the back and a dessert from Highland Bakery. So at any point, please feel free to get up uh, and refill your coffee or refill your dessert, depending on your New Year's resolution uh, agenda. Um, many of you know that Theology Matters uh, is a unique Christian ed program here at First Presbyterian Church designed to equip believers of all ages to go deeper in their spiritual, biblical, and theological formation. We typically consist of, or each course consists of a four-week class schedule um, that attempts to bring seminary or college-level content into a format that is engaging, accessible, and relevant to a lay audience like this one. So I hope that you find this to be a good opportunity to further your knowledge about the Bible and theology. As you can see from the lights here, I've decided to also work on my tan in the midst of teaching this class. Um, no, actually, we have um, one of our goals for this class is not only to produce a live version that you are here part of, but also to capture the content of this course from the slides to the lectures uh, to a variety of other things and then produce them into a digital course that then First Pres members and really members of other churches can access and utilize in small group Bible studies and Sunday school classes. So the way it'll work is this. Uh, each week, we're recording a video and audio version of this class. A day or two or three or so after each session, you'll find an audio link to this class along with the slides that you'll see. So if you miss a class with us, let's say you're here this week and miss next week, you'll be able to go to our website and access the audio content of what you miss. So if you have to miss a week, don't feel like you're missing out in total. Then at the end of the class, we're going to assemble everything together, including the video, uh, lesson outlines, discussion questions, and other resources, and package it all into a really nice, slick, one-click uh, digital course that you then could revisit and review for yourself, or again, you could use in a small group Bible study, a Sunday school class, or if you know of people from other churches who are interested in Christian education content, we hope that First Prez becomes a leader and innovator in church-based theological education such that we're providing content for other courses. And so um, I am grateful to be here to have the opportunity to do this, and I am especially grateful that you are here for the live version of this class. As I said in the email, we have not found a way to digitize coffee and dessert, uh, so there is a reason to be here for the live version as opposed just to, to catch the rerun online later. I'm going to say two other notes then about the format in light of our interest in capturing the course. First, a thanks to John and his crew for setting all this up. I don't know a thing about all of this. And I uh, am deeply grateful for all that you guys have done to make this possible. So thank you for that. Um, one of the ways that we're going to try to accommodate the digital online form of this is that I'm actually going to, each week together is going to actually be two sessions. So there's going to be a point somewhere near the halfway uh, point of this lecture that I'm going to pause and we're going to have a quick two-minute stand-up break, get more coffee, get more dessert, and then we're going to reconvene for part two of the lecture. So that's so that the digital content online isn't an hour and 15 minutes long. It's going to be a shorter, bite-sized piece 
that we think would be better for a Bible study context. Um, as a result, we're going to take a little bit extra time. With your permission, I'm going to go until uh, 8.20 uh, to make up for that five minutes that I lost. And then I'll go to 8.25 because I go long. No, no, no. I'll try to stay on time. Um, so without further ado, let me pray. And then we'll begin our exploration of this topic, the Ten Commandments, context, canon, and culture. God of heaven and earth, we thank you for this time to gather for the friendships, the community that brings us together. We thank you for your word. We pray that in our hearts and our minds we come to deeply, more deeply love your scripture, to understand it, and to apply it in our lives. Lord, be with us as we think and reflect together. Not only bring us together as a community, uh, that grows in knowledge of the Bible and theology, but bring us together as a community who know and love one another and who know and serve you with all of our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, session one. Oh, I should also just say one other uh, uh, preliminary note. Some of you have uh, seats that have an obstructed view to them. It's like old uh, Wrigley Stadium or Fenway where you can sit behind one of the poles. Uh, we're offering heavily discounted prices on those seats if you cannot see clearly. But seriously, if, if, you, if you're having a hard time seeing either me or the screens, maybe that's a good thing. But if you want to see me, you could uh, feel free to move to one of the chairs uh, along the side. Okay, so without any further delay, session one, why study the Ten Commandments? For all intents and purposes, the Ten Commandments are a relatively small portion of Scripture. 17 verses by my count, at least in the Exodus version. It's not even a whole chapter of scripture, and we're going to spend four weeks studying it. I spent a whole semester, actually, at Columbia Theological Seminary teaching on this very text, or these texts. So four weeks, or one semester, for a mere 17 verses. If you did the math, and I did, uh, it constitutes less than 0.3% of the Pentateuch, and of course, far, far less of the whole of the Old Testament let alone the whole of the Bible. But size, of course, doesn't always matter. In the history of both Judaism and Christianity, the Ten Commandments have an undisputed pre uh, preeminence and prominence in both biblical and theological reflection. Philo, um, a Jewish philosopher from about the time uh, when Jesus lived, um, wrote in a treatise on the Ten Commandments this. The Decalogue encompasses the whole of the Torah, by which he means most likely the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of, uh, uh, of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Decalogue encompasses the whole of the Torah, for all the laws in the Bible simply elaborate in detail what the Ten Commandments say in compressed form. So if you want a shortcut to reading uh, the Pentateuch according to Philo, you just read the Ten Commandments because it's all in there anyway. In fact, the rabbis had an, an ancient tradition. They said that if you looked at the Ten Commandments, if you held up the text, and you held it just right and squinted your eyes, you could see all of the law between the lines of each of the Ten Commandments. They thought that the Ten Commandments were dense with meaning, so much so that in reading the Ten Commandments, you encountered all of the Torah. Now, Luther actually goes one step further than the rabbis and, then, and Philo. Luther says this in his larger catechism. Anyone who knows the Ten Commandments perfectly knows the entirety of Scripture. Not just the law, 
but the entirety of Scripture, the Psalms, the Prophets, the Proverbs, the Gospels, the Letters, and Revelation. Paul, or Paul, Luther says, if you know the Ten Commandments perfectly, you know all of the Scriptures. Now, the catch in that phrase, of course, is the perfectly part. Do we know the Ten Commandments perfectly? That might be an ambitious goal for this course, but I hope that you walk away with it knowing uh, the Ten Commandments just a little bit better. Now, in addition to all of this, since at least the fourth century, the Ten Commandments have been incorporated into Christian catechesis, that is Christian ed, like what we're doing, and in Christian liturgy. Uh, the Ten Commandments are treated at length uh, in St. Thomas's Summa Theologia and in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. They both play a prominent place in those uh, theological discourses. Historically, the Ten Commandments have been part of liturgical services in the Anglican, Lutheran, and our own Reformed tradition, though not anymore, or at least not to my knowledge. Um, for instance, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, it was a custom to read the Ten Commandments, for the, ten, or excuse me, for the priest to read the Ten Commandments uh, in an act of, in the moment of confession in the liturgy, and for people to corporately respond, Lord, have mercy. Perhaps with the knowledge that in reading the Ten Commandments, one becomes aware of our inability to keep them. In uh, Reformed uh, liturgical services, the Ten Commandments have often been sung or read before the confession, not after it, but before it, as a way of, again, kind of initiating recognition of our inability to keep these commandments. So, and all that's to say that in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the Ten Commandments if are, are one of, if not the greatest symbol such that we could even a gesture towards the Ten Commandments, a reference towards them, can imply the all of the law or all of the scriptures. The Ten Commandments capture, in essence, kind of the ethical core of both Christianity and Judaism. Now, the Ten Commandments are also prominent beyond the walls of synagogues and churches. The Ten Commandments have a, uh, a place to play in our broader cultural context. context. And they might even become to be seen as a type of cultural icon or a symbol that popular culture has adopted and adapted for its own. There are countless examples of how the Ten Commandments have made their way into popular culture, and I'll, I'll name just a few. One beloved example, of course, is Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments from 1956, making this the 60th anniversary of this groundbreaking film. Now, in all honesty, how many have seen this movie? Oh, that's a good showing. I, when I do this with seminary students who are 23, 24, I ask, and I mean, people barely have a, 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 a recollection of who uh, Charlton Heston was. <laughs> but in this wonderful movie starring Charlton Heston as Moses, of course, and Yul Brenner as Pharaoh, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, um, and it won one. Do you know what it won for, just out of a point of movie trivia? Special effects, and Jeff, do you remember why or what, what in particular? The parting of the sea. What they did to get the parting of the sea is that they actually had a waterfall, and then they captured it and then ran the tape backwards to make it look like the water was flowing back out of uh, the sea as opposed to uh, flowing back in it. And in 1956, that won you an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. How times have changed. Or who can forget that classic moment in Mel Brooks's Life of Brian? 
Hang on one second, and we'll capture it. Oh, no volume. Bummer. Um, well, that's our first technical glitch. Well, hmm, don't know why that is. But in either case, what happens in this? How many of you have seen this? It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a comedy, right? It's a very different than Charlton Heston version. But uh, God commissions Moses, right, with the Ten Commandments. And God says, I give you these 15 commandments. And, and, and Moses is walking with three big tablets along. And he's walking down this, uh, this stone step. And he stumbles. And he drops one of the, the, one of the three tablets. And then he says, I give you the Ten Commandments of God, not the 15. So a more humorous view, but it makes its way in nevertheless. The Ten Commandments have made their way into music. In the words of the immortal Peaches and Herb, we have the Ten Commandments of Love, and I so hope this audio works. And alas, it does not. What a bummer. Okay, well, in either case, do you all know this song? Ten Commandments of Love? Um, I shall never love another. I mean, I should not sing this. This is going to bring down the whole digital content of the course if I begin to sing this song. I'll play it for you another time when we figure out uh, how to get the audio to play. But there it is, Peaches and Herb, the Ten Commandments of Love. If you haven't heard it, it's wonderful. Um, it's a way of kind of capturing the Ten Commandments and, and, and applying it to something different. In fact, this idea of kind of applying the concept of ten laws or ten commandments or ten thou shalts and thou shalt nots have actually been appropriated in countless different ways. Just go on to Amazon.com tonight and just type in Ten Commandments. You'll probably get a few Bible theology oriented books, but mostly what you'll get is a host of books that say something like the Ten Commandments of Dating or the Ten Commandments of Marriage or of Theater or Comedy or Guitar or Lifting Weights or Paris Dining or math, or baseball, or one of my favorites, the Ten Commandments of Cell Phone Etiquette. I'll give you just a taste. Commandment number four, thou shalt not wear more than two wireless devices on thy belt at one time. <laughs> now, I will not call anyone out in this audience or ask you to check, but number four is an important commandment that has often been broken by my father. Uh, or, there are non-book forms of this. Here's an apron that is the Ten Commandments of Barbecuing, something important here in the South to be aware of. I'll give you a couple examples. Commandment three, thou shalt not boil ribs. Thou shalt not boil ribs. And number seven, thou shalt, shalt not use lighter fluid to start your grill. <laughs> and the list goes on. Sometimes the Ten Commandments in culture take even a bigger form. These are little things, aprons, books. But in fact, there are whole theme parks devoted to the Ten Commandments. And one of them is just up the road in Murphy, North Carolina. There you will find the, uh, the Fields of the Wood Bible Park, sponsored by the Church of God of Prophecy. There you can experience all sorts of things. You can hike up the mountain to the nation's cross. You can take in the huge Psalms of Praise monument. You can climb the steps of the Beatitudes. Or, most of all, you can gaze out into this field and see, according to Guinness Book, the world's largest Ten Commandments. This field that you're looking at here um, is about a football field in length. Each of the letters of the Ten Commandments stands about five feet tall. 
and four feet wide. Uh, in total, it's the width of more than a football field. I actually took my class there uh, from Columbia last year as a field trip. And it was a wonderful experience because there's so much to see at this, um, at this theme park. But what was striking and what was so interesting, and we're going to come back to this in just a moment, is that when you actually See, this, this picture is taken from um, an adjacent hill. This is actually up the Beatitude steps you have to climb. It's only from there, it's only from that distant vantage point that you can actually make out the content of the Ten Commandments. But what you're meant to do is actually climb these steps. These are little granite steps. And, but when you climb the steps, you actually can't read the words. You're too close. So there's a certain paradox here about the world's largest Ten Commandments. Once you're in them, as you're meant to be, you can't read them. You see them. You feel them. In a sense, they surround you, but you don't know what you're in, in a way. Or at least you don't know the content. More on that in just a moment. And finally, and perhaps most notably for many of us, uh, the Ten Commandments make their way into court buildings sometimes as is this one that stands, or that stood, I should say, in the State Judicial Building in Alabama. This is a uh, 2.6-ton uh, granite monument that, if you all remember the story, that was snuck into the courtroom uh, in, the, in the dark of night and then eventually was hauled out. And we're going to deal next week specifically with the topic about whether the Ten Commandments should be displayed or why should they be displayed or why shouldn't be they be displayed whether in kind of public settings like this, in court buildings, or even in churches. We're going to open up that question for consideration next week. Well, this is interesting, and this is one of the, the, the key things. In all examples where the Ten Commandments are displayed, it's always just in these very abbreviated forms. Right? They never give you the full content of the Ten Commandments. So there's, there's that issue that you're always getting a synopsis as it were, but there's also very little reflection on which version, and we'll talk about the versions of the Ten Commandments, which numbering, which order, and which part of each commandment to, uh, to consider. So even though there's a lot of heat generated by these debates about whether the Ten Commandments should be displayed publicly, there's often, it has often and ironically, it ends up having little to do with the content itself. So let's pull back for a second and just say what's happening with these cultural appropriations with the Ten Commandments. I mean, why not something like the, the eight beatitudes of dating or the 150 tips of, of, of barbecuing for the Psalms? What is it about the Ten Commandments that makes it so kind of portable and repeatable and applicable to so many other things that have nothing to do with what the commandments talk about? What do you all think? Why, why, why the Ten Commandments? They sound like culture. Say, say more. Soundbite. Oh, soundbite culture. Right. So they're just giving you these little nuggets, this little nuggets, and they condense it down. That's interesting. I like that. Any other thoughts? It's and how so? I think it is marketable. That's right. It already has a certain cachet to it, right? You know, if it was just like you know Ryan's, you know, fourteen rules of barbecuing. I mean, maybe you buy it, right? But, but probably not. But if you call it the Ten Rules of Barbecuing, like you think, oh, this, there's something to this. It has a certain authority to it, a certain cultural cachet already. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Over here, then. We'll go over here to Walter. Well, the Ten Commandments are a 
That's right. I mean, that's very well said. I like that. And Walter? Yeah, in Old Testament, for instance, uh, to understand <laughs> the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's right. Now, there is a certain simplicity to it all, although we'll try to, uh, we'll poke and prod that simplicity a little bit uh, throughout this course. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Now we're going to have to also revisit that word in just a moment too. But I think you're onto something that kind of joins in this idea of kind of the, the authority given to the Ten Commandments. So I, I see three things that make the Ten Commandments so culturally palpable. Yeah, Paul. Yes. 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 No, I think, Paul, that, that's exactly right, I, and that's the first on my list. I think there's something about the tenness of the Ten Commandments, right? Ten fingers, they're memorable, right? So you can literally count them off. But tenness, I think, has a lot of the, a lot of the significance of its adaptability. If it was the 97 commandments, right? That just sounds like a lot. I don't need to know the 97 commandments of barbecuing or dating or weightlifting or Paris dining, but ten... 10 seems about right. 10 seems manageable. I could memorize 10 on my fingers. If it was just the two commandments of barbecuing or weightlifting, I would think, eh, this isn't very thorough. Surely there's more to Paris dining or weightlifting than just two things. So 10 seems um, just to get it just right, right? It, it's, the, it's, the, it's not too much, but it's enough to feel thorough or um, or manageable. So I think there's something to the tenderness of the commandments that enables it to be applicable to other things. Second, and you all have really said this clearly, I think, already, is that there is something about its authority. Referring to the Ten Commandments is tantamount to saying something authoritative. And I think this is why many of these books, uh, or particularly uh, Peaches and Herb, Ten Commandments of Love, they preserve the KJV, thou shalt not. Right? That old language of the KJV somehow in its own right has an authoritative stance in our culture. So if it was just like, do not do this, it would have lose some of the gravitas as opposed to saying, thou shalt not. So I think there's something to the implicit authority of these laws that then can be transferred to other concepts in a way that basically helps sell books or helps sell aprons. Finally, the third thing I noticed about this cultural context of the Ten Commandments is that the, the commandments function more as an icon than a text. And what I mean by that is that what matters about the Ten Commandments are literally the outline of the two tablets. So that if you saw it, even if you saw the outlines of the two tablets, you would automatically think Ten Commandments. And in fact, that's precisely what happens, really, at the Field of the Woods um, theme park. You're not reading the content, but you're in the midst of an icon. I think it's what happens in the court buildings, too. No one's reading the text on the Ten Commandments in the court buildings, but its visual presence there, its, its presence as an image, 
more than a text, I think is what matters. Now that's both good in a sense that it has this symbolic power that even the outline of the two commandments can be suggestive of an ethical principle central to Judaism and Christianity. But it's bad too because sometimes the symbol or the image of the Ten Commandments actually replaces the text of it. And so we actually stop reading the Ten Commandments. We see it, we're around it, we buy books that gesture towards it. We go to the theme parks, so maybe you don't, but you could go to the theme park and see it, but we stop reading it. And this is the ultimate paradox that this course is trying to address. And it's this, I've got a couple slides behind here. Um, despite their prominence in church and culture, the content of the Ten Commandments is not well known. Now, of course, that is not true of this august group of Christian education students. But among other churches and in other places, not like ours, the content of the Ten Commandments is not well known. In fact, recent surveys by the Pew Foundation suggest that only 40% of Protestants, so four out of 10 Protestants, know only half or can name only five of the Ten Commandments. The rest of them can name even fewer. So less than half of Protestants can name only half of the Ten Commandments. So to Luther's quote about knowing the Ten Commandments perfectly means you know the entire scriptures, it means we don't know the entire scriptures very well. Again, this august group accepted. Even if we knew their content, even if we knew their content, um, there would still be the question of their meaning. Now, I, in a way, I think the Ten Commandments do have a certain simplicity of meaning, thou shalt not murder. Perhaps there is a certain obviousness about what that means, although one might wonder what constitutes murder in the Old Testament. If your ox wanders from your field, as oxes tend to do, um, and accidentally kills a child, have you murdered someone? Well, the Old Testament raises that question. Because even what constitutes murder might not even be as simple as we think. And this is to let alone questions about what actually does it mean to lift up the Lord's name in vain? A question we'll deal with next week. Or, um, how is coveting one's neighbor's stuff different than stealing? They are, after, uh, after all, two different commandments in the ten. So maybe the meaning is not as clear. So even if we know the ten, maybe the meaning is not as clear as we might think. But then there's the, also the issue of their interpretation throughout the biblical canon. The Ten Commandments we find, of course, in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but that's not the last we hear of them. The Ten Commandments, or at least parts of them, are echoed in the Psalms, in the Prophets, in the uh, uh, Psalms, Prophets, Proverbs, also in the Gospels, also in the letters of Paul. And what all of those folks are doing is not just reciting the Ten Commandments back to us, but they're interpreting the Ten Commandments, elaborating on them, specifying things about them, applying them to specific cases. And as a result of this, the Ten Commandments, in effect, really aren't written in stone, pun intended. They're actually very nimble and mobile commandments that actually change their meaning and focus through the canon, not as a work of some later theological perspective, but actually in our scriptures themselves, the Ten Commandments are interpreted differently by different books. And so there's another issue. And then finally, even if we knew their content, and even if we understood their meaning, and even if we had a sense of their history of interpretation, there still would be the question of their relevance. 
Do they matter to us today? Or how do they matter to us today? As one example, take the Sabbath commandment, which was already mentioned. Did you know that the Sabbath takes up one-third of the content of the Ten Commandments? And other than the commandment against idolatry, it is the commandment that is repeated, echoed, and elaborated on most, not only in the Old Testament, but yes, also the New. And it's the one commandment we don't even blink an eye at not obeying. So there's a question of relevance for us that I hope to dig into as well. So to put all this in a nutshell then, what the goal of this course is to look with fresh eyes on these ancient texts. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is to think about the context of these ancient texts. What did they mean? Where did they come from? How did this law code function in the ancient world? So we'll think about context, but we'll also think about canon. That is, where do we see these commandments echoed throughout all of the scriptures, and how do other biblical authors interpret them, apply them, and understand them? And then finally, three, we need to say something about culture. And each week, we're going to have a little excursus where we talk about a particular issue in the Ten Commandments and how it has been appropriated in or affects both Christian culture but also uh, popular culture beyond the walls of the church. So that's the task ahead of us, to think about the canon, the context, uh, or the context, the canon, and the culture behind the Ten Commandments. Um, where we'll go from here, this is where we're going to end our first session. Um, we'll have a little bit of a break, get some coffee, get another round of dessert, just about three or four minutes. Uh, then we'll start session two of this first week, which is going to be uh, Decalogue 101. It's going to be a lot of the background about what this text is. And then we'll also deal with what is really arguably the first commandment tonight. And then in subsequent weeks, we'll deal more specifically with the content of each of the commandments and how they're understood and interpreted through time. So with that, let's pause again just briefly, and we'll reconvene um, in about three or four minutes.